Okay, thank you, John. Okay, well, we continue our study in the, uh, some call it the Gospel of the Old Testament, but the, uh, the book of Isaiah. And, um, of course, Isaiah, just in a broad brush kind of overview, you have the northern kingdom, of the, uh, and what's the northern kingdom? You have southern and northern kingdom. What's the northern kingdom called? It's called Samaria. Sometimes it's called, it's actually called Israel. Sometimes it's referenced as Ephraim. But the northern kingdom and the southern will be Judah. And of course, that's where Jerusalem is. And the prophet Isaiah comes in around 720 BC. And he's telling that the northern kingdom is going to be gone. It's going to be attacked by the Assyrians. They're going to be laid away in captivity. It's going to be in just a few short years after his uh, pronouncements, prophecies, that there's going to be the fall of the north. But then Assyria starts probing and coming down into the southern kingdom. Uh, we won't look at it tonight, uh, this afternoon, but we will look at that. And, but they can't uh, defeat because God intervenes miraculously. It says, but about 110 years after Isaiah, what happens to the southern kingdom? To Babylon. That's the famous one. They'll destroy the temple. They carry it away, captivity, captivity. You know, and they go into Babylon, be there about 70, good, very good. 70 years, and then uh, they'll return. And of course, we studied that when we looked at in the uh, preaching series with Nehemiah and Ezra, the rebuilding the temple, rebuilding the walls. So that gives you a kind of sense of it. But a lot of it is, is really warning. Uh, what was the warning that most of the prophets in the Old Testament were warning God's people about? Pardon me? A big thing was idolatry. Remember when they came into the promised land, Moses told the people, when you go into this land, it's your land, it's the promised land. Don't uh, be part of the belief systems of the surrounding peoples, the uh, Amorites, the Hittites, the Canaanites. Don't learn their ways. Don't go into idolatry, immorality, uh, intermarriage, uh, all of these kind of things. And what did they do? Basically, they went that direction. And God continually sends warnings prophet and if that's not heeded he will send judgment but a lot of times before judgment he'll it's incremental he'll send drought he'll send famine he'll send and it's kind of they harden their neck they harden their hearts and then he sends some type of judgment so that's where we pick it up <clears throat> so in chapter 12 where we are today um and then uh, i don't know how much we're going to get into chapter 14 but what the, the we're going to move towards 14 and 14 of course is where we see the introduction, or we see a kind of a background information on uh, Satan, uh, Lucifer. As you get into 14, we'll compare with Ezekiel 28. Uh, we actually started doing this spiritual um, authority series on my radio program on Saturday. We got a good response, and so we'll, we'll kind of get into that. Uh, maybe a little this week, a lot next week, the week, two weeks after that. But if you ever listen to the show, uh, we have a good friend of mine who's a Christian psychiatrist. And he's going to look at it from a Christian point of view. Double-mindedness, how bondages get in our mind uh, from a spiritual as well as a medical. But see, that's Dr. Sang, a good friend of mine. That's uh, uh, 89.1. And that's uh, in, uh, he's, he's a good guy. But then we, we started this show uh, last uh, two weeks on the spiritual dimension. He uh, we got a good response, pretty good response. But anyhow, and it's a call-in show, so you can call in. Just don't ask too many hard questions. If you do. Um, so, uh, okay, we open up with chapter 12, and here we see it comes on the heels 
Uh, last week we looked at uh, this idea of highway of the Lord. You'll see that in the last verse of Isaiah chapter 11. There will be a highway for the remnant of his people who will be left from Assyria. Now he's talking future that one day some of them are going to return and they'll populate the northern kingdom that will become a lot of it Samaria. <clears throat> and then it says, as it was for Israel in the day that he came up from the land of Egypt. What's he referencing here? Mm -hmm. Thank you, Marianne. Moses, to remember how God brought his people out of captivity. He returned them to the promised land. And that's often you'll find that in the Psalms, they, they reference, they go back. It's called recital theology. But you remember what God did for you in the past to encourage you in the present. And that's kind of how this unfolds here. But he says, um, and this, this was a, a very powerful moment, of course, in Israel's history, national history, because they were in bondage, slavery, for 400 years under Pharaoh. Remember, it was a very dark time. They were not a people then. They, of course, they had no government of their own. He would kill the little children, the babies, the male children, and all of this stuff, very much a type of picture of sin and Satan's control. And then he, they, he sends nine plagues through Moses. And the tenth plague is very significant because it it's the one that releases them. And what would that be? The, the, the shedding of the blood of the Passover lamb. The, the, the only way they're going to get out is through the blood of the lamb, which has incredible significance for us today. And so when you go back to Exodus chapter 15, uh, you'll see this kind of um, how they celebrate not only their uh, freedom, but also the defeat uh, of the enemy here in uh, Exodus chapter 15 verse 1 where it says then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord it spoke saying I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously the horse and the rider so, so it's this idea now they're they have a song of praise and victory we're going to see that in Isaiah chapter 12 in a moment but again that has application to us today. Even when you pull, go full forward and turn to Revelation chapter 15, the end of the book, uh, you'll see how, in a sense, this deliverance and this rejoicing has application um, uh, to believers uh, today and in the future, too, in a sense. Look at Revelation chapter 15, and maybe somebody could read verse um, uh, 3 and 4. Revelation, I'll put this on the board. Uh, Revelation. It's easy to remember because it's Exodus 15 and it's also Revelation 15, 3, 4. And they're very similar in the tone of the, of the psalm or the praise. It says, they sing, I'm in verse 3 here, the song of Moses, we just looked at that in Exodus, referenced by Isaiah the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Okay? Uh, saying, great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of all the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, glorify your name. You alone are holy, for all the nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgment. Do you, but do you understand the, uh, the uh, comparison, how this, the linkage here with Exodus, and now in the book of Revelation, Song of praise, uh, song of worship to our Lord. Any thoughts on this? We'll, we'll get into this uh, Isaiah chapter 12 here. 
Okay, so that's, that's what he's thinking. It goes right into this first verse of chapter 12. And remember, when you study um, the scriptures, they did not have chapter and verse break. That really came about the 14th century A.D. So uh, did you guys get to the book of the Dome of the Scroll, the Dead Sea Scrolls? And you see the book of Isaiah is wrapped around, I think it's 24 feet long, and you're not going to find any scripture in chapter breaks, right? Okay, that comes later. So this flows rather nicely uh, from chapter 11, verse 16, to chapter 12, verse 1. And it says, in that day you will say, O Lord, I will praise you, though you were angry with me, your anger is turned away, and you comfort me. And here we have this, um, even though Isaiah was delivering a hard message of a coming judgment, of uh, foreign powers coming in, he always has way downrange, so to speak, that you'll return one day. There's going to be hope. There's going to be a remnant. God has not forgotten about you. Do you see? He, he, so it, this chapter 12 almost reads like a psalm when you get into it. And to me, it's like, a, it's like an oasis in the wilderness. You know, up to this point, we're, we're studying about these heavy messages, coming judge, all that. And then you hit this psalm, and it's almost like refreshing, or it kind of says, okay, there's hope. Uh, th things are not going to be all gloom and doom. There's, there's a, a, a light, so to speak, at the end of the tunnel. And he says, and in that day you will say, O Lord, I will praise you, though you were angry with me, your anger is turned away, and you comfort me. Now, this is an important point uh, of God's anger. Another word for that in the scripture is what? Wrath. His what? Wrath. Yeah, his wrath. And uh, how was God's wrath poured out on these people? Yeah, plagues, drought, uh, illnesses, and ultimately foreign powers would come in and dominate. Uh, and, and, and it has New Testament application because John, the God, and John the Baptist, he starts his preaching by saying, repent and flee the wrath to come. Okay, it says in John chapter 3, verse 36, he that hath the Son hath life, he that hath not the Son shall not see light, but what? Pardon? Well, yeah. The wrath of God abides upon that person. What does that mean? What does it mean, the wrath? So, if you have this person here, you know, he's got this kind of cloud over him, it's the wrath. What does that mean? I mean, how would you explain that to somebody that's, that's kind of curious about the Bible or interested, but he says, what does this mean? The wrath of God abideth upon me. It, it doesn't make sense. Why is God wrathful? Yes? I think it's his judgment. Why? Because we're sinners and he's pure. Okay, so all that sin comes short of the glory of God. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. So in a sense, we carry this wrath uh, some would call it the wages of sin. But wherever we go, we're at enmity with God. We're, we're in, uh, so to speak, conflict. You know, God's not pleased with our behavior, our thought life. Okay, so the wrath of God is there. And how do we move it in that same verse, of course? It will say, he that hath the son. So what's going to happen is the wrath of God 
will go here. So therefore, if God's wrath is poured out here on Jesus, we're going to see, therefore, my granddaughter straightens out all my stuff here. Okay. Uh, therefore, the wrath is removed here. Either way, wrath has to be dealt with. Sin has, does that make sense? Sin has to be judged. Sin has to be dealt with. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And that's a hard message for people to, to, to take some time. They don't fully understand it. Some people think that the definition of a Christian, I try to be a good guy, I turned over a new leaf, I now go to church, I now put some money in the basket. That, that's not the big issue. The big issue is we're carrying a debt load of, of sin, and how do, I, how do I overcome that sin? How can, I, how can a, a sinful person be righteous in the eyes of an all-holy God? Yes? And that's why it'll say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, he who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. Then we should do righteous things. Does that make sense? Then we do righteous things. Uh, we're not saved by good works, but we're saved for good works. And there's a lot of confusion about this. Any thought on this? this you know, we're not Christian because we do Christian things. We do Christian things because we're Christian by nature once we receive Christ. Yes, please. I mean, you're a lot of trying to talk about God as a God of love, and you would never judge anybody, and therefore, you don't have to worry about that. I hear a lot of people talk that way, but they don't realize that God is a just judge, and that wrath has to go somewhere, either be on you or on yeah, right. And it's true. God is love. It says that in 1 John. But he's also holy. God is merciful, but he's also just. Okay? He's compassionate, but he's also righteous. So what happens is we tend to focus on maybe just one of the attributes of God, like his love. Or we just focus on his righteousness, righteousness, and we forget about his love. And that's why the Bible admonishes us as believers to speak the truth in love. That's a very important thing. If we just speak love, 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 like that kind of thing, that's what I call hallmark theology. Everything's good. You know? Well, that's not helpful to people. I mean, if you go to the doctor, he looks at the x-rays, the blood tests, and it's really like serious stuff. But he can, he can do surgery and remedy it. But if he says, you know what, I don't want to tell him this. Why don't you take two aspirins, go home and get a good... He's, he's not helping you. You might feel good leaving the office, but he hasn't told you the truth. He just was really kind to you. You understand? We have to learn how to speak the truth in love. If, if they just hear truth, 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 that it's problematic because sometimes that comes across as too shrill. And we can be very judgmental. Very, but, but we can't just speak love, love, love uh, without the truth that all have seen and come short of the glory of God. Not a popular message in modern culture and society. Don't forget, Jesus called us to be salt of the earth, not sugar. Okay, but this idea of the wrath is very important. He deals with it here. But keep a finger placement here and look at Romans chapter 5 for a minute. I want to see how this applies to us. Romans chapter 5. Um, look at verse, well, if somebody please read verse 1 and 2. Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified freely, we have peace with God 
Okay, do you see we, now we have peace? The only way we have peace with God is through Christ. You know, we don't, we don't have peace by coming to God on our own terms. I'm, trying to, I'm going to try to turn over a new leaf. I'm going to be a, better be a better. No, it's only through Christ. And then he'll go down to say this, um, verse 7, for the same chapter 5 of Romans. I'll write it on the board. For scarcely, uh, for a righteous man uh, will somebody die, yet perhaps for a good man somebody might die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, much more than having been justified, that means in right standing with God, by his blood we shall be saved from the what? Wrath to come. Okay, that, that's an important message. For if when we were enemies, see here's this, we're enemies with God, uh, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And, and therefore it says what? It's same, this will send us back to Isaiah 12. And not only that, but we also what? Rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. So we're under God's wrath. We're separated from God through the cross, through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. We now have peace with God. We're not enemies with God, at enmity with God, but rather we're a child of God. And now we're justified in God's sight, not because what we did, but what Jesus has done for us. And now we are re reconciled. And not only that, we actually have the ministry of reconciliation to others. And because of this, we rejoice. We praise God. Same thing we're going to see in Isaiah chapter 12. Any thoughts on this? Does that kind of follow? Kind of? Okay. Let's go back and look at this in uh, chapter uh, 12 of Isaiah. We'll see this pattern. It's happening back there nearly 3,000 years ago. It has application in our lives even to this very day. Um, okay. Now what we'll say this. Uh, and in that day, I'll read it from my Bible. Uh, and in that day you will say, O Lord, I will praise you. Though you were angry with me, your anger is turned away, and you comfort me. Now, again, when we think you were angry, we, they were under God's wrath, they got judged, but your anger now is turned away, therefore what? What's he say now? I'm comforted, now you comfort me. So when we're in right relationship with God, we've come to the cross, we receive salvation through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, and Jesus says in John chapter 14 and chapter 16, he will now send what? He will not leave us, or he will send us what? Ah, the comforter. You, you understand how this sequence is along? It's very comforting. I'm just, you know, uh, it, it just is. Because we were here on the outs with God. You know, if you take two magnets and reverse them, like, you know, that's kind of like we were. And now he, we're one with him. He'll never leave us nor forsake us. But in that process, we receive so much more than just forgiveness and salvation. We receive the comfort of God as expressed through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That, you know, when you study salvation, it is, it's like the gift that keeps on giving. The more you learn about it, and you read the New Testament, but also when you pull in the Old Testament and see it's uh, what I call, it's the fine brush, you know, it's finely uh, brushed in. Somebody have their hand up, my man? Okay. So now we see this idea, and he says, behold, verse two, God is my salvation. 
salvation. Now he declares this, God is my salvation, not just God is my Lord, God is my creator, God. God is my salvation, he has rescued me. Question, what does the name Jesus mean? It comes from the Hebrew word what? Yeah, what is it? Yeshua, which is Joshua, essentially. What does the name Yeshua or the name Jesus mean? Partially right. God is our salvation. See, it'll say, um, Jesus, uh, meaning, word meaning, the Lord saves, or God is my salvation in the Greek. Uh, we see uh, Jesus in the Hebrew, it's Yeshua. And that's why when the angel announced to Mary, when he says, you shall call his name Jesus, why? For he will save his people from his sins, you see? So when the psalmist, I mean, the Isaiah says, um, uh, behold, God is my salvation, we can literally say Jesus is my salvation. You see, even by his name, he is my salvation. Does that make, does that make sense? It's interesting. Even the name of Jesus is about salvation. You know, our salvation. Okay, so he says, uh, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. And here we see this whole issue of fear because, uh, now, Isaiah is speaking this in the first person, but he's identifying with the nation of Israel at this time. But he's saying they had all kinds of reasons to be fearful, did they not? I mean, there's an impending disaster is coming. And afraid. But he says, I trust in you, therefore I will not be afraid. And that, that is such a big thing in our lives, in the world today, fear. I mean, really, if you look at the news or anything, it opens with some element of fear, doesn't it? What they used to say in the newspapers, if it bleeds, it leads. You know, it kind of, you know, uh, but it's the bad news. It's the brokenness of humankind, the human condition. But coming to Christ, coming in right relationship with God, fear is now dispelled. It doesn't mean it's not there, but we shouldn't be dominated by fear. Is that right? That's why the first message of the angels to the shepherds is what? Fear not. Fear not. And constantly you see our Lord dealing with the apostles about this idea of fear. Why were you afraid? Where's your faith? Remember, they're going across the galley in the boat. Where was your fear? This idea, and of all people, at the, after the death of Jesus on the cross, they were fearful. I mean, they, because even at the cross, it says they went afar off. The only apostle we think is at the cross is John. But it says, you know, from Zechariah, I will smite the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. They were afar off. Why? They fear the leaders getting crucified publicly. Who's next? They're going to come after us. So they're fearful. Now, once they see the risen Savior, once they see all the prophecies are confirmed, when he opens it up in Luke 24 and he says, starting with Moses, he explains to him all this stuff about himself. And then the Holy Spirit comes. They're no longer fearful. And the little, you know, Peter, who, was, who cowered when that little uh, servant girl by the charcoal fire said aren't you one of his disciples no no three times no 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 will be the guy on the day of pentecost is on the temple steps in jerusalem and he's proclaiming the message and he doesn't care who does what matter of fact when they arrest him and throw him in jail him and john they forbid him to speak in the name of jesus and he finally gets released where does he go He's preaching outside on the temple. So what transformed? What was the transformation? They moved from fear to faith. They moved. 
And that, that, that's the big issue. And uh, big, big, big issue today is fear. Big, big issue today is fear. But through Christ, uh, not, then we're not going to have episodes of fear or experience, but we should not have that dreaded fear. What's life all about? What's going to happen to me after I die? Does God know me? Does he hear my prayers? All of these issues. If you keep your, just turn for a moment to Hebrews chapter 2 for a moment. Uh, Hebrews chapter 2. And it shows, uh, I always like this one because it's, it's, it has so much relevance uh, today. And if somebody could read verse 14 and 15. Hebrews chapter How would you explain those two verses to somebody that asked you? If somebody said, you know, you have a coffee and they go, you know, I started studying the Bible and they're not quite a believer, they're, they're whatever, and they say, I really can't figure this out. What, what is the guy saying here? It sounds important, but I don't get it. Jesus has overcome death. But what does he do before that? He, he becomes, who said the incarnation. What was lost through man will be regained through man. Remember it says what was lost through the first Adam, second Adam is going to buy back Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15. So, okay, so the incarnation, he comes, and then what? He flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared, that through what? Death. There's again, you have to have that uh, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. And this ties all the way back. They call it the scarlet thread that goes all through the Bible from Genesis even into Revelation when you see the blood of the Lamb, you know, and all these kind of images. It says that through death he might destroy, not take care of, or destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the evil one, 1 John. Uh, then it says, and release, there's that idea of prisoners released, those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage, slavery. Again, bondage, blood of the lamb, released from prison, you know, released out of that to freedom. To go. It's true in the Old Testament, it has application to our lives today. Any thoughts on this? But once, you, once we are sensitive to the Old and the New Testament and how they work together, I think it, it actually increases our faith. I really do. I, I believe it. Uh, Jesus will say in John chapter 14, these things I tell you before they happen so that after they happen, you might believe. So, and they didn't get it. If you think the apostles were ready for Easter Sunday, they weren't. I mean, what were the women doing when they went to the garden tomb? They weren't going to sit on a bench and say, oh, I wonder what time he... They were going to do what? Yeah, the two guys in the road to Emmaus, disciples, they were walking back to, to, to Emmaus. They think it's over. That's at the end of Jesus' ministry. But after they, he rose, then they started fitting it together. Got it, got it. What he said was true. Now it's fulfillment. You see, then they understood it. But I think we can be like, a little like that. You know, when we understand all this that was prophesied beforehand, how it was fulfilled, then I think it increases our faith. 
We see that our faith is strong. Our faith is sure. Yes, ma'am. Well, Scripture says that he has not given us a spirit of fear, so we know it comes from him. Right. So therefore, we can take authority over it and name it. And... We can. You're, you're right. I mean, we have to be aware. It's in First Timothy. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of love, joy, and a sound mind. But it'll also say in John chapter 14, let not your hearts be so that suggests it may not be from the enemy, but we might allow ourselves to be fearful. You know, some of us can be very good at scaring ourselves. I'm just saying, you know, doubts, fears, why did this happen, circumstances, why did that happen to that person at that time? We don't know, you know, we don't know. But it may not be the enemy that's bringing this. It could be, I'm not saying it couldn't be, but it, the Bible would suggest, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. I go to prepare a place. So we can reassure ourselves by, by our, our, how solid our faith basis is. Does that make sense? It is really solid. And then to be aware that we, fear is going to come at us in many different packages. A surprise, a visit to the doctor, a setback, or whatever. You know, I mean, watch the national news, international news. I mean, you know, somebody says, if, if you're not confused by now, you haven't been paying attention. But I mean, the idea, <laughs> but we have a lock solid uh, relationship with God. I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's our starting point. If, I, if we have that, and we know that he's working all things out, no, but I mean, that could involve suffering and persecution. We see that happening around the world to believers. He's got an ultimate goal, so we're not like the people in the world who grieve because they don't have a hope. You know, I did a funeral this two weeks ago, but this was the most powerful video, five-minute video. This woman, raised in the 60s, all of this going on in rebellion, but she came to Christ through reading a little track, and that video was so powerful when she told how she knelt down, confessed sins, received Christ, when she stood up, she says, I was a different person. And for the next 45 years, she lived it. Now, that wasn't a funeral of sorrow and somber tone. I mean, you grieve because of the loss. But there was this sense it was celebratory. It was, she was still witnessing, as it says in Hebrews, though being dead, her life still speaks to us. So, you know, that's what we have. That's what we must know we have. Uh, some of us, uh, you know, I use the acronym SAD. We tend to be spiritually attention deficit. But we're in good company. The apostles were like that. That's why Peter and Paul said, I'm going to put you in remembrance of this. I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren. I want you, you know. Uh, but we, we all have that tendency because we're caught up in the world so much. Somebody have a comment on this? Um, yes, please. Yeah. In two months, you know, with Billy Graham and then hers, and this is national TV and certainly international for the sake of Billy Graham, the word really goes out. But uh, again, death is not the end. You know, I always say, you know, for a Christian, at the end of a Christian life, it's not a period or a question mark. It's a comma and then a real big exclamation mark. Okay. <laughs> uh, but, but it's the idea... If, if you know where something's at, you haven't lost it. If you know where something's at, you haven't. If you know where someone's at, you might, we might feel their loss and the emptiness that their vacancy leaves to us, but we have that hope that, hey, 
you know, life is brief. You know, we're gonna we're gonna be there. You know, James says it's, it's like a vapor of smoke. You know, it, it goes quick. I mean. I'm 69, I got 10 grandkids. I mean, you know, you know, <laughs> they say inside every 80-year-old, there's an 8-year-old that said, hey, what just happened? <laughs> um, okay, back to Isaiah. Uh, on a serious note. Okay, he says, verse 2, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. Again, that's conditional. He knows his salvation. He's trusting in that. Therefore, he will not be afraid. You just can't not trust in the Lord and say to yourself, I'm not going to be afraid, like whistling through the graveyard. So, you know, just everything's good. No, we got to trust in the Lord, and then those fears will be uh, minimized. And then he says, um, for uh, Jehovah, the Lord is my strength and song, and now he's become my salvation. So this is called, he, he first says, the Lord is my what? The Lord is my strength. I can do all things. Okay, okay number two. Song. And number three. My salvation. That's that's part of the alliteration. My strength, my song, my salvation. This, this, he's really positioning himself here in his relationship with God. You know, he's my strength. I don't lean on my own understanding. I trust in the Lord. He is my song. He's put a song in my heart. I've got a reason to sing. Somebody says Christians don't sing because they're good singers. They sing because they have a song. Okay? And, and, and that's true. We now have... I have an old friend. He says, I've become a Christian just for the music alone. Uh, <laughs> but it's the idea that we've got a reason to thank God. We've got a reason to praise God, to... Sing how great is thy faithfulness or amazing grace. We, we have a song now. You know, it, it's, it's powerful. And of course, he is my salvation. That's the issue. That we're lost in need of a savior. And, and he'll go on here and he'll say, um, therefore, because of this, uh, this is hooked up with that wrath issue. His anger is but for a moment. His savior is for a lifetime. Weeping may last for the night, but shout of joy comes in the morning. And here we see that joyful attitude now that he's in right relationship. Okay, now he'll say this in verse 3. Therefore with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And uh, this idea of water or wells used in the Old Testament, used in the New Testament, but he talks about it as the wells of salvation. Okay, we're going to see how this, of course, relates in the New Testament. But of course, any, certainly anybody that's been in the Middle East or recently to Israel, they were, the wells were the most precious thing because, well, you know, like they say, water equals life. Water equals life. You know, for drinking water, uh, for, the, for the crops, you had to have water. For your cattle, you had to have water. Uh, for washing, for cooking, for purification. How many mikvahs, you know, were the, these little pools that the Jewish people, they step down, be purified, you know, and then they come out. Uh, it's very interesting, in uh, Israel, you see the mikvahs, these little baths that the Israelites, but the Romans always like their saunas. They love their saunas. Wherever you go, you see these ancient saunas. But this idea, water equals life, and he says, here, you're going to draw out. If you don't have life, particularly in that part of the world, you die. I don't know if there's doctors in the room. I think you can go maybe three days, 
without water, four days without water. It's just dehydration is going to set in. It's just what it is. But here he equates that from the springs of salvation. Now here's an interesting verse. Um, and this speaks to national Israel, but it has implications. This is where he says in Jeremiah chapter 2, Have a nation changed their gods, which are yet not gods? But my people, my people have changed their, their glory for what does not profit. Be astonished, O you heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Be very desolate, saith the Lord. In other words, this is a tragic thing. What is it? My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewed or dug them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can't hold water. Now, what is a cistern? What is the difference between a cistern and a well? Pardon me? Okay, wells tap into some kind of underground uh, water stream, as it were. What's a cistern? <laughs> Essentially, it's a rain. It's a man-made catchment uh, to to uh, catch water. My my friend does this. Raymond does this in Thailand, where he's because they have dry season, a long dry season. He catches the water. He's got about twenty of these cisterns, and then caps them. And then when the uh, monsoons come, he captures it out there, like to the rim. Then he caps them, and then come dry season, he puts a hose in with a pump, and he's able to get it out. But they're man-made. But the, the Jeremiah says, you've made for yourselves broken cisterns that cannot even hold water. How does that have spiritual application? What, does, what would a man-made cistern be? An idol? Why, why would an idol be a, a man-made cistern? You're hoping you're going to get some refreshment, spiritual uh, nourishment, your life, essentially. But it's number one, it's man-made. Number two, it can't hold water that long. You understand? How might people do this today? Or is this going on today? What would be a man-made cistern today? Pardon me? Oh, you're sticking with the metaphor. Or bottled water. Okay, how would bottled water have a spiritual effect? No, I... <laughs> Just on our wealth, on our own wealth. But how about false belief systems? You know, this huge trend uh, toward the occult, uh, to Eastern religions, to uh, I'm okay, you're okay, uh, self uh, kind of uh, affirmation and things like this. You know, all of these things, they, they, they give a little bit of a limited taste, it, it seemed like, but they cannot fully satisfy. And the key is they're man made. They're the device of man. Okay, man thought this out. From the very beginning, I mean, you can see Adam and Eve, when they covered themselves with the fig leaves, was kind of like a man-made deal, you know, to cover guilt and shame and nakedness. But God's, well, yes, please. Yeah, yeah, the addictions, uh, alcohol, uh, drug, opioids, we're seeing today, where it has a limited moment of satisfaction or something, but it cannot sustain life. And this is a big problem. It was a big problem back then. 
And he's talking to a people who were going to these false belief systems, thinking that that was going to give them uh, what they really needed. And of course, the key here is uh, they've forsaken uh, the, the living waters. Uh, me, he's, they've forsaken me. Not, not God, God's not saying you've forsaken the faith of your father Abraham or the religion of Israel. He's saying you've forsaken me, and he's identifying himself here as what? He is the living waters. He's always springing. He's always new, uh, always refreshing, pure, clean. And that's why this is so important when you get to John chapter 4 with the woman at the well. And in what country? Where was she at? Samaria. He's going up through the northern kingdom. He's weary. The apostles go into the nearby village to get food. And he says to the woman, would you give me something to drink? And she says, she says a lot of things, but she basically says, why you being a man, ask me a woman. And he says, then he, then he, then he says to her, uh, if you knew the water I could give you, you would never have to come back again. You'd be complete. In other words, you'd have living waters. You've got to come back here every noon or every whatever it is to get this water. It, it doesn't sustain you. It, it, it's okay for today, but you need it tomorrow, you need it the next day. And then what's interesting about the woman is she says what to Jesus? Give me this water. It's interesting because Nicodemus in the previous chapter does not say, give me this new birth. But she says, give me this water. And then Jesus says, okay, go call your husband. And she says, I have none, Lord. And she says, You're, he's, he doesn't bludgeon her, you know, like her judgmental. He says, you, you spoke the truth. You've had five men. Now the one you're with now is not your husband. And then she says, I perceive you're a prophet. <laughs> That's the King James, you know. But, but, you know, he deals with the issue. The sin issue, her life was not fully satisfied in these relationships. Just like that water can never fully satisfy. And so this is in the Gospel of John, and John is very big, if you know, with numbers, particularly number seven, which means perfection or completion. So in her life, how many men did she have? Six. What man did she meet that day? Seven. She would never thirst again. Okay? Her life was complete. So much so it says she leaves the water pot, she goes in and brings half the town out to meet Jesus. Because we're going to see in Isaiah 12, if we have this encounter with God, and we really have these waters springing up, we have to share it. We have to share it with us. Yes, please. You know, the mikvahs are filled with what's called living water. And when they go in, they're baptized, it's all over here by themselves. Seven steps down, seven steps up. Yeah, some have stepped, right, you're right. You see that, did you see that in the... In Israel, yeah. So here we see this idea of the water, and he says here, and of course in chapter 7, at the high feast, when Jesus stands up and he says, whoever's thirsty, let me see if I have that scripture. Well, first of all, the psalmist would say, you, God, are, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and a parched land where there is no water. In a sense, we're living in this world now, okay, and it's easy to, to, to live in dry places, spiritually speaking. Uh, and, and here the psalmist is saying, I seek for you. My goal is you. Uh, I have to have that. Uh, I have to have that living water. You see, you see the Bible says, uh, those that hunger and thirst uh, for righteousness will surely uh, be filled. And, of course, our, uh, we see this in relation with water in the desert when God tells Moses to strike the rock. Remember in the wilderness and this miracle happens. And the application, of course, is to our Lord where 1 Corinthians 10, uh, Paul says, 
they drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them and that rock was Christ. You understand? But the rock had to be struck. Uh, Jesus says that's why the Son of Man, he must be struck, crucified. Uh, Then he can send the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? The the, the, the analogy, it's really tight how God uses these types. And of course our Lord will say this in John chapter 7. If any man is thirsty, do you think we live in a thirsty world? I mean, we we are spiritual. That's why I think really um, there is a real spiritual thirst out there today. Now where people go to get that quenched is problematic. And that's why you have all these shows on and Dr. whatever and... I call it the Oprah to Chopra effect. It, it, they're looking, looking, what's the answer? Well, how can I be fulfilled? How can I be satisfied? How can I get rid of guilt? How can I, all of these things, uh, they just can't find anything outside of Christ that will completely answer these big questions in life. He says, if any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, that's the critical issue. As the scripture said, from his innermost being uh, shall flow rivers. There's that living water, of living water. Remember Jeremiah, living water. Uh, but this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were, were to receive future, for the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So do you see how Jesus links up here with uh, Jeremiah 2, it links up with Isaiah 12, goes way back to Moses striking the rock. Does that kind of follow? But it has application for us today, because we can freely take it. That's why it'll say in Ephesians chapter 4, be filled with the Holy Spirit not with wine where there's intoxicate, but be filled, draw nigh unto God, you know, be in his word, be in prayer, be in fellowship, uh, stay walking in the spirit. Too many of us are spiritually dehydrated. You know, we could be moving on fumes. It's, it doesn't mean we're not a believer, but we're, maybe we're not living that life that Christ has called us to live in terms of victory and influence and purpose. You know, but it's free. You know, Jesus says, Who's, you know, any thought on this? I'm going to start wrapping this up in just a second. Okay, so now uh, what's interesting is the very, almost, the, it is the last chapter in the Bible. We'll say this, the spirit and the bride. Who's the bride? The church. This is almost the last verse in the Bible, not quite. Say, come and let the one who hears say, come, let the one who is thirsty come and let the one who wishes take what? the free gift of the water of life. And here the Holy Spirit is working in concert or cooperation with the bride, with the church, inviting people to taste and see that the Lord is good. To, you know, are you thirsty? Are you longing? Is life out of sorts with you? Is, you know, whatever. But we have to realize we have that cup of cold water we can give in Jesus' name. Does that make sense? You'll see this as we close up here in Isaiah chapter 12, once they get this, then he says, you've got to go share this with the nations. You got to, we'll go back to Isaiah chapter 12 and see this. Um, then he says, um, Isaiah chapter 12, verse 4, and in that day you will say, praise the Lord, call upon his name, declare his deeds among the people. Does anybody have a different translation for people? Nations? Nations, right. This idea take it out from here, go out from here, share it. Uh, and again, think about the day the Holy Spirit came down on Pentecost. You know, the, 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 all these Jewish people, every adult male that we were expected to come to Pentecost, it was one of the major feast days, they come, you know, they come together, the Holy Spirit goes, and then they go out. They've got to go out, you know. 
That, that's, what, that's why really church is meant for believers. You know, we can't expect people to come. To, we do. They come to Christ at church. But basically, the church is for believers to come together that we might be refreshed and strengthened and, renewed, and then go out and share what we have and then see people enfolded into the church. When we don't go out and think that everything is going to happen here, it's problematic because we're all called to be those that go out and share this living water. Does that make sense? You know, kind of cool. Okay. Um, he says, make mention of his name that is exalted. Then he finally says, sing to the Lord, uh, for he has done excellent things. This is known in all the earth. In other words, the ends of the earth. I mean, you think about it, Sunday, today, around the world, you have 2.4 billion people, some way, somehow, are gathering together in name in the name of Jesus Christ. I'm not saying they're all Christians or believers, but in the name of Christ, they're coming together, okay? And just as this kind of says, the ends of the earth, uh, and they says, cry out, shout, O inhabitants of Zion, for great is the what? The Holy One of Israel. And we'll look at this Holy One. This is the second time Isaiah mentions this Holy One, uh, but he repeats this title of Holy One. And we'll see how that applies to Jesus when we come you know, into this deeper into the book of Isaiah when he really starts focusing on this Holy One of Israel. It's a title of God. It's, it's straight up. But when Jesus comes on the scene, even the demons in Mark, early in the Gospel of Mark, that when he delivers somebody, uh, the demons say, what have we to do with you, O Holy One of Israel? You see? So it's, we'll see how this thing, how Isaiah brings us to that, that point. Any closing thoughts on any of this? Uh, yes, please. I love the illustration of that fountain. Just sitting here looking at it, thinking it is so full of life and oxygen, effervescence, overflowing. And it's coming into us if we would just open our minds and hearts and let the Spirit of God come into us. It's alive. Yeah, that's a good point. It's living, they call it living waters. Yeah, yeah. You know, there, there's sometimes you can be with people or be in a fellowship, you can sense God's presence. Am I right? His presence, his power. Uh, you know, just by going into the room. Sometimes, you know, some people go into a room and they can bless them by just their entry. Others by their exit. Uh, <laughs> pardon me? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, okay. We better close on that note. Okay. okay, anyone would like to close us in a word of prayer, please? Okay, I'll, I'll close. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this beautiful day that you've given to us, Lord. Uh, we just thank you, Lord. Uh, every day uh, it says your mercies are new. And so, Lord, we thank you uh, for Bay Presbyterian Church and that we can all assemble here together. And we thank you for our country. We have the freedom still to do this without fear of persecution. It's not like this in so many parts of the world this morning. And so, Lord, help us, Lord, as we look into the book of Isaiah, uh, we can glean truths and, and principles and promises back here that have application in our lives today, knowing uh, that we don't have to have fear, that we can have the Holy Spirit, and that Holy Spirit uh, can actually control us. We can, we can become fountains of living waters as we go back home, into the workplace, into our different uh, spheres of activity, but you can use us to give a cup of cold water to somebody that desperately is thirsty to know what the truth is. So again, Lord, we thank you for our time together. We ask you to bless each one of us and our families this week. Not that we've earned it. We certainly don't deserve it. 
but by your grace would you bless us that we in turn can be a blessing to many. And we pray all of these things for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.